time I approached this text, I approached it, quite honestly, as a minister. Assuming that the message of this text was about audiences that won't listen. I mean, first Moses went to Pharaoh, and that attempt backfired. Then he went to Israel, and they wouldn't hear his word either. From the perspective of a minister, it's a story that sometimes resonates, and that is much to be lamented. But the more I studied the text itself, the more I saw that this wasn't merely about two audiences who were unwilling to listen. Rather, it was about a preacher who is enduring the depths of discouragement. And that can happen when it seems like the people before you are rejecting your message. That can happen when you see no fruit from your ministry. And the result can leave a man quite discouraged. In fact, can leave him ready to throw in the towel. Nor is that merely a phenomenon experienced among those formally called to be ministers of the Word. All of us are called to be confessors of Christ. All of us are called to bear the office of prophet Revealing God's truth to those whom he sets before us. And therefore all of us are in danger of feeling the discouragement that we see here in Moses. But when we feel that discouragement, which we will periodically, when we do the things that God calls us to do and it seems to backfire on us, when we speak the words that God calls us to speak and it's rejected, we need to hear... What God tells Moses in this passage, that we might be encouraged, that we might be reminded where our strength lies and who is calling the shots and where our encouragement ought to be drawn from. In this text, God grants reassurance for his discouraged prophet and I would say his discouraged prophets. And that's a theme that we often need. God grants reassurance for his discouraged prophet. And it's a reassurance that begins as he proclaims his sovereign purpose concerning a wicked king. Remember what brought Moses to this point of discouragement. In chapter 5, we saw how Moses was received the first time he met with Pharaoh. He came and spoke to the great king on behalf of God, the true God. And in answer, Pharaoh both rejected God's command and resolved to punish the people whom Moses represented because Pharaoh rightly recognized this was not a labor dispute. This was not some sort of social engineering This was a fight between two gods. Moses came proclaiming, thus says Yahweh, the true God. And Pharaoh responded, no, thus says Pharaoh, the chief god of Egypt. Problem was, Egypt's false god was able to inflict quite a bit of pain on the people of God. And that's what he did, by substantially adding to their workload. And as we heard, when the foreman came and complained about this... Pharaoh explained this extra work is because 
Clearly, Israel has been idle. If they weren't idle, if they didn't have all this time on their hands, they wouldn't want to go on a ministry retreat. So the king increased their labor so they wouldn't set their mind on such things, so they wouldn't make such demands. And this led the foreman to accuse Moses, implying that he was the reason for their suffering. Now Moses is distraught by all of this. He pours out his heart to God, expressing his conviction that God hasn't planned this out all that well, hasn't been all that fair to him. Follow the flow of what he says in verses 22 and 23. He says that God has brought evil upon this people. Now, on the one hand, this is an implicit command of, or expl- implicit confession of God's sovereignty. God is in charge of everything Israel experiences. They won't receive anything that He has not ordained. But on the other hand, He's, he's complaining that God has ordained evil, that God has ordained to hurt His people. And then He asks, Why did you ever send me? Moses thought he was sent to bring deliverance for God's people. He remembers how when God first approached him at the burning bush, he said, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He remembers that and he has, he's not seeing it. But he's forgotten That God also said, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And that hasn't happened yet. We haven't gotten to that point yet. We've only gotten to the point of he won't yet let you go. And so Moses brings an accusation that is quite serious. In verse 22, he says that God has brought evil upon this people. In verse 23, he says, Pharaoh has done evil against Israel. Now put those two together. The same vocabulary, the same essential sentence structure. He's implying that God and Pharaoh are in league. That they are cooperating to persecute Israel. That's a serious charge. Now, now of course, we understand Moses is distraught. Forty years ago, he tried to help his people Israel. And he was branded a murderer and sent into exile, his own people rejecting him. Now he's come back to help deliver them at God's command. And it seems like they're ready to reject him again. It seems like it's backfiring all over again. So he pours out his frustration and his fear before God. And God answers. But notice, despite the harshness of the accusation Moses has made, he answers Gently. Verse 1 of chapter 6, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them from his land. Now this is God's assurance. He remains in control of this situation. Not Pharaoh, but God is calling the shots. Not Pharaoh, but God is on the true throne. God promised that he would deliver Israel and he will in fact deliver them, but in his way. What should strike us in verse 1 is what it says of God's power. Pharaoh may make life difficult 
for the Hebrews, killing some of them with hard work, causing them to weep at their plight. But ultimately, it is God who calls the shots, God who is on the throne, and God wants Moses to recognize that reality. He wants us to recognize that reality too. Boy, sometimes it looks like things are a mess, doesn't it? Look at our culture right now. How our government seems intent on undermining all of our rights and our freedoms. How our economy seems to be relentlessly tanking while inflation rises. How this month, it seems every major corporation is intent on celebrating rebellion and abomination before the Lord with great parades being held in the name of pride, the root of sin. And we wonder, has God not heard our prayers? And meanwhile, Christianity is scorned. The true and living God is mocked. His word is removed from the schools, even schools that confess to be Christian undermine and mock the truth of God's word and we wonder what is going on has God not seen does he not know and when we speak up we're smacked down why has God even put us here why has God even sent us but he reminds us I am on the throne I have promised to do my holy will and I will do so now we might not understand why he's doing it in this way or what he's seeking to accomplish with this or that detail. But he wants us to understand he is in fact doing what he has promised. He's gathering his people. He's building his kingdom. He's discipling the nations. He's glorifying his name. He is speeding the day to the return of Christ when all things will be made new. We might not understand the way he's doing it, but we must understand that he remains on the throne. And we need to trust him. Now, of course, God is not done with Moses. Part of Moses' discouragement was related to Pharaoh's threats and abuse, but a big part was related to the continued enslavement of Israel. So having reminded him that he is in charge with regard to Pharaoh, that he does have a purpose and he will cause Pharaoh to cast them out of the land, now God turns to Israel and to Moses' grief about their continued enslavement, declaring his covenant faithfulness toward a weary people. That's our second point. He begins by giving a confident reminder of his identity. Our God is Yahweh. Kids, when you see that word LORD all in caps, that's rendering God's covenant name. We'll talk about how that came to be rendered LORD in this evening's sermon. But, uh, but recognize that is a name that is given to no other God. El, Elohim. Those could be used of other gods, but not Yahweh. It's a name that's unique to Him. It means He is. It identifies him as the God who is eternally present. 
The God who is always there, always active, always faithful, never absent. To Abraham and to his offspring, God was known as God Almighty, El Shaddai. A name that emphasizes God's ability to provide what he promises. A name that urges the people to believe God will accomplish what he sets out to do. But to Israel under Moses, he has now revealed himself as Yahweh, the God who is. Now that's a little bit odd. Because Exodus is not the first place we encounter the name Yahweh. We find it all the way back in Genesis 2, in in the creation account. It's used numerous times in connection with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So how can God say that he didn't reveal himself as Yahweh to their fathers? Well, it could be that those references to his covenant name in the earlier passages were for Moses. Remember, he's the one who recorded all that history back in Genesis. And he's writing it for the people of his age. So he's reminding them this is the same God that we serve. When in fact he hadn't revealed himself as Yahweh to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That might be, or it might be, that he revealed his name, but not its significance. Either way. What's important is that Israel knew him now, in Moses' day, as Yahweh. He had shown to them this essential part of his character, that he is the ever-present, ever-trustworthy God, that he is the source of all reality, the ground of all truth. The fact that God had revealed this name meant the time of fulfillment, the time of deliverance is at hand. And what's more, he reminds reminds Moses that he is the covenant God. At defining points in their history, God's people were given the promises of the covenant. The promise that he would be their God and they would become his people. The promise that he would bless them and make them to be a blessing. The promise that he would give them the land of their sojourning. They had been sojourners. They had been wanderers in the land of Canaan, right? They had flocks and herds and servants, but but they didn't possess the land. They were living in a place that was, was owned and possessed by others. But now Moses' generation has arrived, has arisen. They too are waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. They too are eager to receive the long-awaited blessing. But now God has heard their groaning. God has resolved to bring the promises to pass. God has resolved to give what He promised. And so verse 6, He he vows to deliver Israel. He will deliver them from Egypt's burdens. No more. Will they wear themselves out obeying unreasonable demands? No longer. Will their lives revolve around the decrees of Pharaoh? The Lord will rescue them from their slavery. Every one of their chains he will break. The iron will of Pharaoh he will bend to his will. And with an outstretched arm and great judgments, the Lord will redeem his people. That word's important. It means to buy back. The Lord has allowed them to fall into slavery, but He now will bring them out, and He is the one who will do it. He will pay the price. He will restore them, and He will make them His. Our God will be no distant, faceless deity, but they will know Him personally as their God. He will dwell in their midst 
They will worship Him up close. They will see His wonders with their own eyes. And folks, this is not a promise merely to an ancient people, but His promise to us. To us, He has revealed Himself as Yahweh, the God who is, the God who is present, the God from whom we can never depart. He promised Israel that that they would be His people. And to us... To us, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what he said to us. Even the promise of the land is ours, not the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine. That was just a small foretaste. He's promised to us all the land, all the creation, which will be ours when Jesus comes back and makes it all new and perfect and removes all the stain of sin. This is the promise He has made to His people in every age, urging us as He urged Israel of old, look to Me, calling us to trust Him, believing that He is the one who can do it. But notice how Israel responds. They hear Moses' word spoken at God's command and they reject it. They did not listen to Moses. But it wasn't a rejection born of hardened hearts or of wicked rebellion. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh Slavery. They had been traumatized, broken by the wickedness that surrounded them and that pressed down upon them. And so they ignored God's servant, preferring to endure the cruelty of Pharaoh, refusing to believe that anyone could rescue them. Folks, we see that all around us. You try to speak to your coworker about your joy in the Lord. He wants nothing to do with it. Why is that? You try to talk to your neighbor, invite him to church. No, don't give me that religion stuff, he says. Why though? Why does he refuse? It might be just pure, unbridled rebellion. It might be hard-heartedness, full commitment to his sin, or, or it might be that he's been hurt, that she's been abused, that they have been discouraged. Time and time again I've tried to quit drinking, I can't seem to do it. Don't you try to give me hope again. I've encountered, or perhaps I've encountered, I've encountered people that speak the way you do, that, that talk about this God of yours, and man, they hurt me. I don't want to hear it. They rejected Moses at first. Because they were hurt, because they were beat down, because they were surrounded and 
crushed by their slavery. But God didn't say, turn your back on them. He said, I will deliver them. Which is a message to us as we go forth confessing Christ. For us as we go forth speaking about God. Just because they respond harshly or just because they they reject your word the first time, don't, don't give up. Because you don't know what they've experienced. You don't know why they're responding that way. And you don't know whether God might not soften their hearts, break their chains, draw them to himself. He is Yahweh. He is the eternally powerful, the eternally present, the omnipotent creator and redeemer. And likewise, when we're discouraged. Have you ever done your devotions and thought, what did I just read? Because your mind and your heart was just so overwhelmed with the stuff of life with all of the, the stuff on the to-do list and all of the, the trials of the kids or the broader family or the people at work and it just beats you down and you can't hear God's word or you hear and you just have a hard time believing it. How can I rest in this when I've got all this stuff? I don't have time to rest. I don't have time... But God doesn't give up. God doesn't walk away. He calls us to hear His word anew, to heed His promises once more, to rest not in our strength, not in our conviction, but in His. Because He is the faithful one, not us. Notice He doesn't tell Moses here, you know, if only they'll get up and meet me halfway. I'll deliver them from the land. No. It's all God. I will deliver them. I will provide for them. I will act. And even when they reject him, he resolves to do it. Thing is, it is one thing to say that we trust God. It's another thing entirely to live in that trust. And though we are often beaten down, He does call us to trust Him. He does call us to look unto Him. And so our final brief point that we see here in verses 10 through 13 is how God affirms His divine authority for His weak servant, Moses. Verses 10 and 11, we find Moses being given another task. He's to go and speak again to Pharaoh. Can you imagine how that sounded to Moses? I mean, didn't work out so well the first time. People of Israel ended up hurting a lot more because of it. Pharaoh certainly didn't seem eager to listen. If he does that again, he's got to be thinking, if I do that again, at best they're going to run me out on a rail. At worst, I might not survive it. Sometimes God does that. He gives us that task that seems 
hopeless. It seems like it'll never work. Or that task that seems like it's really going to backfire on us. And we think, do you really know, Lord, what you're doing? You know, the reformer John Calvin experienced that. We associate Calvin with Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, But did you know he ministered there twice? The first time he ministered there for about three years and it was terrible. No one wanted to listen to him. No one wanted to heed his word. They finally expelled him. He didn't receive another call. He was kicked out. He went to Strasbourg. And there he settled. He married. He, heard pe- or he had people who wanted to hear him. Who honored him. It was an idyllic life by his account. He loved Strasbourg. And then he received a visitor a few years down the road. A visitor who had come from Geneva with a letter of call. They wanted him back. They wanted him to minister there. And Calvin begged God to let him refuse. In fact, he protested calling Geneva that cross on which I had to perish daily a thousand times over. But God laid it on his heart. He couldn't refuse. He had to go to that place where he was convinced they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't turn. And God used his preaching that second time to utterly transform Geneva. So that it became a city where the bulk of the people were eager to hear God's word, to apply it to all of life, to transform the way they did things, to bring it in order to, with God's word. You see, he does that. He exercises his sovereignty precisely when he thinks it's a lost, or when we think it's a lost cause. Moses certainly responds with hesitation, expresses his Objection! You want me to go to Pharaoh? Did you, did you see how Israel just responded to me? And he says he has uncircumcised lips, which might be hearkening back to what he said in chapter 3 about his inability to speak well, or which might be a, a way of saying, I'm a sinner. How can I speak to the one who be- believes himself to be God on behalf of the holy God when I'm a sinner? Either way, what Moses is really saying here is, you got the wrong guy. But look at God's response, verse 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The Lord is utterly unmoved by Moses' protestations. As though Moses had not spoken at all, God says, okay, now here's what you're to say to Israel and here's what you're to say to Pharaoh. What task is it that God is setting before you that you think he's got the wrong guy for? Is it that co-worker that you need to love even though he is utterly unlovable? Is it that Christian brother or sister who's been walking waywardly 
that you need to confront, even though you know and you, you just know that they don't want to hear it? Is it that family member that you need to reconcile with, even though you just know it's hopeless? What impossible task has he clearly given you? That you know it's just a bad idea. Because that doesn't absolve you. God is faithful and God is sovereign. When we have something against someone or we see their sin looming up before us, then we are called by God's word to go and confront them. When we have... Uh, something between us and a brother or sister in Christ, we are called to go and be reconciled. When we have been set before someone, whether at work or in our neighborhood, we are called to show them the love of Christ and to find ways to confess Christ to them, even when it doesn't seem likely. The question is, will you believe that God is sovereign? Will you believe that God can use the likes of you? Will you go forth trusting not in you, not in your ability, but in Him? It's easy in this world of sin to grow discouraged, especially as our culture continues to degenerate. But my friends, God gives us the reassurance we need to obey Him, to serve Him, to confess Him, even when it seems to our eyes to be pointless. So we need to look not to our neighbor, not to the apparent effectiveness or lack thereof, and not to our own ability. But we need to remember that we are merely servants of Yahweh, the eternally present, eternally sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God. And He will use us to bring about the end that he has ordained unto his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are weak. We so often grow discouraged in the tasks that you give us, believing that we're the wrong person or believing that it's just not going to work. Remind us, as you reminded Moses, that it's not our strength on which we are to rely, but yours. That it's not our ability that will bring about the desired end, but yours. Encourage us, strengthen us, and enable us to do the work that you set before us and to do it boldly with our eyes upon you. And use us, we pray, as instruments in your hand that the glory might be unto you, and that your promises might be fulfilled in your people. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This text, it really calls us to walk trustingly with the Lord.